When you made your way on the Underground Railroad, there were a few things you needed to do to get where you needed to be. It required networking and preparation. Quakers were to be most likely to render aid, but for the most part, you had to look for signs that you were amongst friends. Timing is everything. Never try to sneak off in the cold, if you can help it. Leave on a Saturday because newspapers don't run on Sunday. And that would give you a day before anyone could put a reward notice with your name and description. Other attention should be paid to appearance, dress, as nicely as you can. It may be a harder effort to obtain clothes, but you don't want to draw eyes to tattered rags. Children must be old enough to be quiet, or they will be drugged. If you can pass for white, do so. It will give you access to trains, and you can hide in plain sight. Trickery can be done, but you shouldn't solely rely on it. All it takes is one observant person. You must be able to live off the land if help is not nearby. And most importantly, you must keep walking north. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Harriet Tubman, Episode 2. When enslaved persons escaped from their captors, the first thing they would do normally is lay low. Headhunters carried out open seasons, so those who had escaped had to keep a low profile to avoid recapture. Harriet, who had arrived in Philadelphia, found freedom a bizarre contradiction of comfort. She was all alone, and though she could come and go and earn money on her own, there was this sense of sadness. She worked as a housekeeper, but her thoughts frequently wandered back to her family. It was in 1850 that Harriet received word that her niece was to be sold at an auction along with her two small children. It had been rumors of auction blocks that had triggered Harriet's own flight. And to lose family at an auction, to have them sold far away, was a catalyst to put herself back in harm's way. The situation was dire. Kessia or Kezi, as she was known, and her two children were set to be sold. They didn't have a lot of time. Kessia's husband, John, began communicating with Harriet, using a message system with notes passed up the Underground Railroad. Tubman learned that Kessie and Kessie's two young children, James Alfred and Araminta, were to be auctioned off at the Cambridge, Maryland courthouse. She may have been Tubman's niece, but... The two were incredibly close in age, and their relationship more sisterly than anything else. Winter sales on the auction block were long associated with men from further south coming north looking for cheaper labor of individuals that they believed to be overstocked. Adding to the fear, there were legends of the depravity of southern plantation owners. It had been catalyst for Harriet's escape with her brothers the first time, They'd heard they were going to be auctioned down south. During that first attempt, however, her brothers opted out due to fear, and they decided to return. Harriet traveled to Baltimore and worked with Kasaya's husband, who was free, to help plan an escape. 
This time, the escape would take more risk. A little trickery would be needed on that auction block, and so Cassia's husband John planned to outbid everyone at the auction for the three. He would then bow out before the auctioneer realized he was gone. Bully put his wife and children on a boat and took them to Baltimore where Harriet would help them hide for a few days. Due to the incredibly secretive nature of the operations of the Underground Railroad, there isn't a lot known about the logistics of escapes, just their successes. When it had just been Harriet on the run, she had only herself to rely upon. But Harriet truly believed her divine purpose was to deliver others from the bondage that they had found themselves in. And even at those moments when those who had successfully escaped into the world spoken of in lore with comparisons to a new promised land, it was all a dream. For most, the only promise ever kept in that new promised land was that if you were discovered to be a runaway, they would find you and take you right back where you came from. As Harriet had done before her, Kessia adopted a new name. She became Marianne. The paranoia felt daily, even when walking to do a simple mundane task. You had to be wondering if you were being watched and closely observed. But Harriet wouldn't stop. Not until she got everyone she loved out of there. This would be the first of 13 separate missions to lead people to the north. She knew people still in need of rescue. Her brothers, her mother, her husband. You'll remember from the last episode that John Tubman was a free man. But Harriet wanted to bring him alongside her on her missions, and that could have caused her more harm than she could have ever realized. John was still in Dorchester County, and Harriet was a very well-known figure who could have easily been recognized. She still wanted to go back there and get her husband. While she was hiding, she received some heartbreaking news. John, her love... He had moved on, likely assuming she would never come back or possibly not wanting to rock the boat by being affiliated with Harriet Tubman. Harriet learned he was gone. Despite walking back into hell for him at the risk of being identified, John had not only moved on, he had married the other woman. Though she believed she was following a higher mission from God, this must have felt like punishment. She had to put herself in harm's way in the most dangerous place for her, for a man. And he didn't even bother to try to come see her, even though he knew exactly where she was. I think every woman who follows my TikTok channel is ready to repeat after me. Ahem. I hate it when men. That's it. That's the sentence. All of us are sitting here listening to this part with pain and empathy. But it wouldn't take long for Harriet to shrug him off her shoulders. She had a task... And some years later, of John's infidelity, she just told her friends, well, if he can do without me, I can do without him. From there, she put that pain and the death of her marriage into a compartment in her brain. There she kept it and didn't take it out to look at it. That door stayed closed, and Harriet went where the others opened. Her future was painted in front of her in dreams. And now those dreams did not include nor did they need, John Tubman. Amongst those that ran the Underground Railroad, Harriet was given the title of conductor. The honor indicated that Harriet knew the routes to freedom, knew the laws, and was able to lead easily. 
But the organization ran into an issue in 1850 with the passage of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. It stipulated that it was illegal for any citizen to assist an escaped enslaved person and demanded that if they found one, he or she should be apprehended and turned into the authorities for deportation back to the quote-unquote rightful owner. Those who refused to return a runaway would pay a hefty penalty of $1,000. Rather than panic, Harriet and all she worked with quietly came together. They would change coded language and signs used. And then they would change the way out. Heading north was taking on an entirely new meaning. Harriet's rescues would shift to the cold frontier of Canada. Those federal fugitive laws meant nothing the moment you stepped foot in Canada. And that is how Canada became the last stop, the terminus of the Underground Railroad. Pushing through the loss of her first marriage, Tubman persevered. Her own troubles took a small step to the side as she prepared to carry out the mission. In addition to her own intelligence and strength, Harriet had impressed a lot of people. One of those men was Thomas Garrett, an abolitionist, Quaker, and friend. At a time where it was difficult to trust anyone, Tubman clearly believed in Garrett's integrity. He lived in Wilmington, Delaware, one of the last few large cities within a slave-holding state that was within a reasonable distance to the freedom of Pennsylvania. Due to the dangers of fugitive state laws and the need for secrecy, many of those on the Underground Railroad did not keep a trail of documents relating to the escapes that they aided with. The need for secrecy was too dear. But Garrett would write glowingly of Harriet, remembering that he had met her in the 1840s or thereabout. She would often come to ask for small favors when she arrived. Usually it was to ask for shoes or food. She had been asked if she could lead a group into Canada, and because all involved understood that it would be safer to cross to Canada changing the route rather than trying to hide them with headhunters on the loose. It was in 1851 when the Underground asked her to take 11 fugitive runaways to cross into Canada, and that group included her brother William Henry and his wife Catherine. Their master had forbidden the two from getting married, so they decided to leave together. For the sake of disguise, Catherine had dressed herself as a man. Author Catherine Clinton noted that Harriet said she, quote, no longer trusted Uncle Sam with her people, and so she just led them clear off to Canada. It was new terrain and treacherous. The modern Moses, she didn't quite split the Niagara, but she freed her people regardless. In his later years writing of Tubman, Garrett remembered that Harriet had an intuition unlike anything he had ever seen in his life. No slave who placed himself under her care was ever arrested that I have heard of. She mostly had her regular stopping places on her route, but in one instance when she had two stout men with her some thirty miles below here, she paused. She said that God had told her to stop, which she did, and then she asked God what she must do. God voice through Harriet, had said to leave the roadway, turn to the left. So she obeyed, and soon came to a small stream of tide water. There was no boat, no bridge. She again inquired of her guide what she was to do. She was told to go through. She traversed across that cold creek while the others who were with her looked at her oddly. They could have stayed on the road. There were no boats to cross that water. 
But Harriet soon found a full cabin of people hiding. Been on the run, Harriet knew she had to lead them with her group as well, and she did so successfully. Harriet made her first border cross in December 1851. The group used a crossing bridge into St. Catherine, Ontario. Many believe that at some point in that journey, one of the safe houses she used was owned by known abolitionist Frederick Douglass. He mentions it briefly in his autobiography, noting that he had at a certain point around that date at least 11 runaways in his home headed to Canada. The date coincides, but he never mentions Tubman by name. The info on the Underground Railroad must stay underground. Harriet Tubman had an almost Joan of Arc-like armor of divine protection around her. But instead of only relying on what she believed to be a gift of God-given leadership, she was also smart. She watched the land lingering for a time in the community where she was so she could save money and begin plotting her next chess moves. The story of Harriet Tubman was spreading to headhunters and nervous plantation owners. Bounties were placed on her head for considerable sums. There was a $12,000 one placed on her head by the state of Maryland. A group of plantation owners had raised over 40,000. Huge sums of money, but Harriet would cross back again safely to Canada time after time and bring more people with her. They were running low on supplies, and Harriet would have to cross through the painful icy Niagara waters to get help from those in her quest to return to Pennsylvania. She returned to Philadelphia to begin her work to save the other members of her family, still enslaved. Everyone in Maryland and in Delaware and Pennsylvania, they were all on high alert for Harriet. This was building in tandem with free black men and women who were concerned about the relationships between their areas and headhunters. People could be kidnapped, even if they were free. Manumission was not always easily provable to people asking for documents. Frederick Douglass traveled on a train with forged papers. It's very, very risky. Even with documentation, sometimes they weren't believed. But Harriet wanted to save her mother. For years, the family had looked into claims that her mother, Rhett, had been freed by her previous owner. But after his death, she remained enslaved. This time to his daughter-in-law, Eliza Ann Broaddus. A local Dorchester politician and attorney who knew Harriet and her family worked hard to secure Rhett's freedom. Rip believed she was free, and Eliza was going to fight her until the end. They tried to prove with their might that Harriet Ross was being illegally held. There was one silver lining here. The court proceedings would not allow Eliza and Broadus to sell anyone in the center of this case as it was looked at. It might be time to run. Though most of the specifics of these voyages are kept intentionally vague, Harriet would often set rendezvous points, not too close to local plantations. She would sing in codes for those to hear her, alerting people of danger in the woods or people approaching. 
If a child began to cry, then they were often given some form of medication to help render them silent. Harriet carried a weapon, and though she noted it was for protection, it was always there to quickly get someone to fall in line. One passenger on one journey started to panic and began to contemplate running. Knowing that someone captured and tortured could lead to their location, she threatened to shoot him in the head. Dead men don't talk. Whether Harriet would have actually shot a passenger on her railroad, I don't know. No one knows. The rules were to be quiet, do your part, and keep walking, and who would blame her? She would not talk much about these stories. Saying only, she was a conductor of a train and that she never once lost a passenger. Her abolitionist friend Thomas Garrett and several of his associates began to notice the state of those who managed to make their way up north. As time went on, they had to provide clothing, shoes, food, and medicine. In some cases, the escapees would appear with wounds so badly infected that they would die, almost having made it to freedom. Persons who moved freely needed documents to move on things like trains or boats. That was always the fastest way to move in and out of an area, but it was also the most dangerous. Trains running between the north and south were frequently checked for people hiding. The law and the headhunters were heating up the crossing points. Thankfully for Harriet's mother, Ben Ross, her husband, managed to buy her freedom in 1855. Harriet's brothers remained nearby, but her three sisters, who had been sold down south a long time ago, would remain there. The family were never reunited. After not making the first trip to freedom with Harriet, her brothers had tried on numerous occasions to flee, but they were never successful. When a buyer came to see about Harriet's brothers... Eliza Broadus blankly said she wanted to sell them to Georgia. Further away, the implication was cruel. A woman so annoyed by Harriet Tubman fighting for her family's freedom that she wanted to send them as far away as she possibly could. The implication was so cruel. Send them in down to the South, to the known brutal treatment, poor conditions, and death. In a rare moment of doing the right thing, the owner who had wanted to purchase them came to them and told them of the plan. The white man who, moments before, had been willing to buy these men, told them to run. One can only imagine how much Harriet felt towards her brothers who decided not to escape during her very first attempt. It was successful for her, but they had gone back home but she was ready to head back to fetch them in 1854. She had to tread carefully because she knew people would be watching. She first had a letter dictated to a free black man by the name of Jacob Jackson. She signed the letter William Henry Jackson. That was the name of Jacob's adopted son. She used code biblical verses and phrasing so it would leave little doubt to her friend Jacob who the message was from. She dictated the following, that Jackson's brothers should be ready to step aboard the good old ship of Zion. When he arrived at the post officer, he was drilled about the meaning of the imagery and if it was a code. Jacob was very quick to know what was happening, and he explained to the postmaster that he never had any brothers at all. The thing was, he knew exactly whose brothers were being asked about. Tubman's brothers were allowed to spend Christmas together after they received word 
to meet at the Ross cabin, that message delivered to them by Jacob Jackson. The message was urging them to come see their parents. Once there, the family had a beautiful reuniting, if only for a moment. Inside the cabin were a few other people who were planning on making the route with Harriet. Because Harriet knew her father would be blamed, she asked some in the group to blindfold him and take him into a cabin, and it was there where she could meet him. He could speak with his daughter and hug her for the first time in years. So when interrogated, he could answer truthfully that he had not seen his daughter. In fact, Harriet had hidden all the escapees around the property to perpetuate the truth. Ben Ross, Harriet's father, had not seen a single soul. Sadly, Harriet was not able to say goodbye to her mother. The group made it to Wilmington to the home of her friend Thomas Garrett, who recalled that Harriet came forward with her large group. Despite the dire circumstances, Thomas Garrett always seemed amused at the way Harriet would show up asking for things. She had a specific way of talking that let Thomas know he had no choice but to give her what she needed. Harriet prefaced every request by saying, God told me you had $23 for me. Some 12 months after, she called on me again and said that God told her I had some money for her, but not so much as before. I had, a few days previous, received the net proceeds of one pound ten shillings from Europe for her. To say the least, there was something remarkable in these facts, whether clairvoyance or the divine impression on her mind from the source of all that power, I cannot tell, but it was certain she had a guide within herself other than the written word, for she never had any education. When Harriet showed up saying, hey, God told me you had something for me, Thomas Garrett, in fact, usually had something to give. With details of escapes being lost to history out of the safety of those involved, Garrett would tell those stories toward the end of his life. His activities weren't secret to those around. He placed himself in great danger frequently, and yet he continued to do the work. He would continue to be a significant figure in Harriet Tubman's life. It was in 1857 when Harriet's father found himself in a dangerous predicament. Ben Ross helped to hide a group of eight runaways from Dorchester County in his cabin in Caroline County. History remembers the Dover Eight because they were captured and escaped from jail in Dover, and Ben Ross was quickly identified as an aide. He and his wife were now free, but that didn't mean they weren't in danger. They were aiding and abetting, and they were also the parents of Harriet Tubman. The Dover Eight had escaped, so now it looked like the penalty of holding a hideout for fugitives was on the way. A local minister had his home ripped from top to bottom. Authorities found a couple of copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and at the time, it was a crime for an African-American man to own this book. For that alone, that minister was sentenced to ten years in jail for owning a book. And so Harriet went back down to Caroline County, knowing her parents were getting too old to safely make any sort of voyage on their own. They were too weak for the dangers of the elements. Brainstorming, Harriet created a carriage set up. It allowed her parents to sit low in the carriage, traveling the roads by night. Harriet managed to get to the home of Thomas Garrett. He fed them and gave them money to travel to Canada by train. A huge risk. They were both freed and they had the appropriate documents needed to join their family in Canada, but still, it was dangerous. Harriet could have stopped, but she believed that something was coming, 
and despite her continued raids to help people to flee, she knew she needed to be doing more. Tensions were growing. Her story and the constant bounty on her head was triggering a fire for freedom, and it wouldn't be long before Harriet began having prophetic dreams again. She had had them as a child. They came often, and she recalled once, remember seeing a man with a white beard, whose presence calmed her. She noted his ruggedness in the dream, and it felt like he wanted to say something to her, but the dream would end before he was able to talk. She recalled sometimes the dream would end violently, with him falling or disappearing. He once turned into a serpent, but she was not afraid of it. So when someone introduced Harriet to a fellow abolitionist in 1858, she was a bit taken aback. She said it was the face of the man from the dream. He was there to talk to her specifically. Here in 2023, I'm not sure what the exact pleasantries exchanged in that moment were, but I like to believe the two, who were no doubt familiar with the activities of the other, felt the pull of fate in that moment. Pleasure to meet you, ma'am. My name is John Brown. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly, most-of-the-time podcast where we talk about the movers and the shakers who were out there doing the thing. Those who were God's favorites and seemed to be unstoppable, and of course, sometimes we covered the people who just thought they were God's favorites. Thank you so much to everybody who donates to the Patreon. This allows me to buy books and resources and get to have articles behind paywalls, and it also pays for licensing costs and music costs. Things you don't always think of when you're editing a podcast. So feel free to check out my campaign to save Sundowner. As you know, if you have been here for a while, or if you follow me on TikTok, I am working to save a Dunkirk little ship owned by Titanic's second officer, Charles Lightoller. You know the drill. He's my homeboy. The boat is in really, really horrific condition after it was left to rot in a museum, and now we are working to save her from disappearing. If you're interested in learning about that, go over to my TikTok at Melissa Fairlady. I have links all about that project. Not to mention, I will be back in the UK in April. Woohoo! I'm attending the Dunkirk Association Banquet. Uh, if you're interested in donating to Sundowner or donating to this trip, because remember, I'm a journalist, we do not make that much money, <laughs> uh, and you want to help out and donate, uh, that would be very appreciated. Those links are all over on my TikTok, Melissa Fair Lady, on the link tree in the bio. You can find it there. Sources today include Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom by Katherine Clinton great book. Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero by Kate Clifford Larson. Oh my god, you guys, you have to go out and buy this one. If not, if you don't read another book on Tubman, grab this. She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. One, that title is great. Two, the book is awesome. Check it out. Go get it on Amazon. Always support the authors we use to source these episodes. I also use material from the Harriet Tubman Historical Society, specifically the letter by Thomas Garrett describing his friend, and what little info I could get from the site about John Tubman, Harriet's husband. We don't know a lot about that guy, but she didn't need him anyway. She was out there living her damn best life. Good for her. What heartbreak. Harriet Tubman did not let her slow that down. I encourage all young women to do the same. Upgrade yourself. Upgrade that guy for social justice and be an unbothered queen, as Gen Z likes to say. All right, that's enough of me trying to sound cool. 
And please join us next time as we get into the relationship between Harriet Tubman and John Brown. The nation is crawling to war and you're going to see what an absolute badass this woman is. Badass. I can't wait to share those stories with you. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time, friends.